This is an open letter to Richard Nixon. Dear Richard, do go and see the Rocky Horror Picture Show. All those unfortunate incidents will seem trivial after you've seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show. President Ford, he'd love to see it, but he doesn't have the same amount of freedom you do. See the Rocky Horror Picture Show, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parents. Hello to all of you unconventional conventionists out there. Welcome to Rocky Talkie, the podcast about everything and anything Rocky Horror. I'm Aaron. And I'm Meg. And this week, we're asking a question. What about? Well, that clip might give you a clue. Meg and I are joined by one of our absolute favorite guests, Randy Highland from the JCCP out of Pittsburgh. Hey, Randy, how you doing? Hi, guys. I'm doing great, and I'm very excited to join the show today. Hi, Randy. We're so excited for you to be here. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, we got a really fun topic for today, but before we dig in, we have to know, how have you been? How was Halloween at JCCP? Did you guys have an awesome season? Uh, we definitely did. It was uh, really chaotic. I directed, so I had, like, I don't know, 40 some rehearsals to run, which was a lot. Ooh, that's a lot. Oh, we do a lot of rehearsing at the JCCP. But um, yeah, it was a really great season. And uh, we had five sold out October shows, which is really good for us. Nice. And uh, also we had a really fun one. Our October 15th show, there was a little bit of an incident and the projector gave out uh, at the start of the movie. Oh. Literally during the 20th Century Fox fanfare, the picture quit. No! Yeah, apparently there was like a, a short in the projector, and it shorted out the bulb, and essentially no video for the rest of the film. Oh, shit. And so we did the entire show with just audio. <laughs> Oh, my God. For the whole night. Yeah, it was great. Wow. It was one of my favorite shows that we've ever done, to be honest. Um, yeah, I was going to say, that does sound kind of fun. Showing off, like, how good we actually are and, like, the fact that we do rehearse and do know this movie and do can perform without the screen and all that. So was really exciting. Oh, that's so crazy. You're basically just doing the stage show at that point. Like, yeah. that's great. Yeah, I mean, it was it was super great, and um, we had a great time with it. It's a show I'll never forget. That blows me away. And, like, it sounds like the audience was here for it. Like, that's cool, you know? Like, something that they didn't expect and something they'd never seen and probably won't see again, right? Right. We had 400 people in the audience. Not one person asked for a refund. Nobody left, which I thought was awesome, so. Oh, that's amazing. Well, congrats to you guys out in Pittsburgh. That sounds... Fucking phenomenal, man. It was great. Thank you. Yeah, that sounds like an incredible time. I'm glad you had that cool experience that you were able to turn into a net positive. <laughs> so last time you were here, Randy, we talked about all of Lou Adler's Empire on the Sunset Strip. If our listeners haven't checked that one out, it's episode 80. And uh, boy, did it cover a lot. This time, we've got a fun topic related to the movie that we haven't discussed before. Uh, that I think you wrote into us, right, Randy? I did. So a couple of weeks back, I was having a discussion with um, some of my friends and cast 
about the idea that Brad was listening to a tape of Nixon's resignation speech. This is at the start of the driving scene, and the idea of a tape deck on an early 70s car really stuck in my head because, like, Mercedes didn't put the first cassette tape into factory car until, like, 1971. And so, like, having a car with a tape deck in the early 70s would have been really unusual. So I reached out to Aaron about Brad's car and what model of car it would have been that would have had a tape deck or to be able to listen to this speech and all that. I had gone down a whole rabbit hole on it and was really interested. So I messaged Aaron and here we are today. Perfect. And yeah, that's what we're going to talk about today is uh, what I have now dubbed the Nixon conundrum. Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, boys. So for all the less nerdy nerds out there, let's explain why this matters and why it's been a topic in the Rocky community like literally forever. Right. So this is a thing that is tied to the criminologist's speech that's right before driving scene and then Nixon's speech that we hear on the radio during driving scene. So the criminologist says that it was a late November evening. Uh, and then we hear Nixon's resignation speech, which happened in August of 1974. That's not in November, that's in August. So why, the Rocky community asks, would his resignation speech have been playing in November? So Rocky fans have been trying to reconcile this for decades. One of the most often floated suggestions is that maybe Brad taped Nixon's speech and was listening to the recording in the car with Janet. Okay, um, A, that's super fucking geeky. Brad's a big nerd. Why, why, why would you do that? Why would you record a president's resignation speech and listen to it on a loop in the car? What the fuck? Yeah, that's, that's the question, right? Like, is this possible? Is this the thing that could have happened? And does it explain it? Yeah, so could... Brad have recorded Nixon's resignation speech in August and then later played it in the car on that late November evening. All right. Good question. Let's do it. Okay. So actually, guys, first things first, I bet there are some folks out there that weren't really paying attention during their U.S. poli-sci class. So could we get like the Sparknotes version of Watergate? Okay. So Watergate, this all takes place during the 1972 presidential election. In that election, incumbent Republican President Richard Nixon defeated Democratic Senator George McGovern of South Dakota. On June 17, 1972, after receiving an anonymous tip, police arrested five men inside the offices of the Democratic (laughs) National Committee in the Watergate complex in Washington, D.C. One of the men was James W. McCord Jr., a former CIA employee and a security man for Nixon's committee, to re-elect the president, popularly known as CREEP. <laughs> An appropriate acronym, if I've ever heard one. Yeah, so from the items in these guys' possession, it was pretty clear that they intended to steal Democratic secrets about the election, and that they were planning on putting surveillance devices in the DNC headquarters. This, as you might expect, was a pretty big scandal, but it didn't really impact the election. 
obviously Nixon won, and the full scope of the Nixon administration's involvement wouldn't be revealed until a couple of years later. Shortly after the break-in, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, two reporters from the Washington Post, were approached by a secret informant who revealed the Nixon administration's involvement in the break-in and their attempted cover-up of the crime. That informant was dubbed Deep Throat. Which, yes, was a reference to the porno film starring Linda Lovelace that had come out earlier that year. <laughs> come out. <laughs> it, funny story, we actually know now who Deep Throat was. In 2005, it was revealed that former FBI associate director Mark Felt had been the insider who tipped off the two journalists. Woodward and Bernstein's investigative work was published in the February 1974 book, All the President's Men, which would go on to become the 1976 film starring Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford. Shortly after their book was released, the shit really began to hit the fan for Nixon. Between February and August of 1974, Nixon was overwhelmed with controversy around the break-in and his administration's attempt to cover up. As a result, Nixon lost support from both sides of the political aisle and was facing an arduous impeachment. In an effort to save face and avoid the consequences, he made a speech from the Oval Office on August 8, 1974, announcing his resignation from the presidency. And it's this resignation speech that we hear playing at the start of Driving Scene. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is opposed to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. What does America need, Dick? America needs a full-time president and a full-time Congress, particularly at this time with problems we face at home and abroad. Which, if you've ever wondered, that callback is not just the audience calling Nixon a dick. He was widely known as Tricky Dick for his devious campaign tactics during his 1950 run for Congress, and in 1953, when he became vice president alongside Dwight D. Eisenhower, the two campaigned under the slogan, I can dick all American partners. Oddly uh, progressive for a Republican candidate in the 50s, but okay. <laughs> so uh, Nixon's resignation speech is what we're hearing at the start of driving scene. But just moments earlier during the criminologist speech, he reveals that it is a late November evening. And with Nixon's speech happening in August, that's why the Rocky community is trying to reconcile all of this. And yes, it's probably just a mistake, but that's not any fun. So yeah, instead of calling it a mistake, the theory is that Brad, being a super nerd, may have just recorded Nixon's speech and he was listening to it on a tape for funsies after he proposed to Janet. So the real question here is, could Brad have even owned a tape recorder that he could have used to record Nixon's resignation speech off the radio? And let's just be clear here. When we say tape, we don't mean a cassette tape. We're talking about an eight-track tape. And yes, I can already hear you saying it, though cassettes and 8-tracks were both available since the early 60s, 8-track was the more relevant format up through the mid-70s, and it's the format that makes sense in this context, as we will talk about here in a minute. Oh my god, Grandpa. <laughs> this is straightforward enough. 
we tracked down some vintage consumer electronic catalogs from the mid-70s, and indeed, you could get an 8-track record play stereo for around 190 bucks. Adjusted for inflation, that's around $1,150 today. There were several of these recorders on the market with a wide range of price points. Assuming that Brad was working a minimum wage job in 1974 when minimum wage was $2 an hour, yikes! he would have spent just over two weeks worth of wages to pick up one of these recorders. So while we were looking this up, we also found a Reddit thread on an R Ask Old People about their memories from the 70s. And one of the users who was a teenager in 1974 said that their favorite memento from that decade was an 8-track tape that they had used to record Nixon's resignation speech off the radio. So not only was it absolutely feasible, we've got a first-hand account of someone who was as big of a fucking nerd as Brad. So yeah, I can hear you out there asking, why are we focusing on 8-track as the format of choice here? Well... It's because Brad was listening to it in his car. And in the late 60s and 70s, if you had a tape deck in your car, it was an 8-track. But did Brad's car have an 8-track player? And this is what I had originally reached out to Aaron about, the model of Brad's car. Because most cars in the early 70s didn't have a tape player. And also, it just really was kind of an unfamiliar looking car to me it, it you know it was evocative of maybe a a jeep wagoneer or something like that it's definitely not that so that's how we all started this conversation and you asked me what was the model of brad's car and i told you i have no fucking clue man i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> um that that's helpful yeah thanks sweetie hey i mean but uh, if somebody asks me a question about Rocky, I'm sure he's fucking to find out the answer, at least as best as I can. So it turned out that this actually wasn't that hard to find on the scale of, you know, random Rocky trivia. So I dug through the news group. I found a bunch of old posts. I collated a bunch of information. I looked up a bunch of facts. Uh, and, and then I realized that there is an entry on RockyHorrorWiki.org that just kind of tells you uh, that Brad is apparently driving a 1967 Ford Country Squire. Wait. Okay, hold on. Two things. First of all, what a Richard O. Bernstein Cinderella rock driving like a Lamborghini coach or whatever it fucking was thing like of course brad would drive a country squire <laughs> um and second of all uh, it was in 1967 yep which means brad's driving an eight-year-old car in november of 74 which is still better than the 17 year old car that erwin lapsey was giving away in shock <laughs> but i digress eight years because even in 1967, the automotive industry still did that thing where the model years are one year ahead of the year you can actually buy the thing. This was actually a practice that car manufacturers adopted from the fashion industry in the 1920s as a form of planned obsolescence. Because of course it is. Okay, so how did anyone figure out the model? The car's visible on screen for like two seconds. So, and I didn't know this before I started looking into it, it was actually a fairly recognizable model. 
it's got that word exterior and it's got this like apparently really streamlined aesthetic that was very specific to this car um in a 2003 discussion on the rocky news group friend of the show art laurie pointed out that quote embarrassingly enough a few of us were alive when these cars were on the road (laughs) (laughs) which all right fair art and uh he he was able to just instantly id the model in year so all right can i just say fucking shout out to arthur i just love that like we don't have to constantly hassle Arthur to be on the show. <laughs> I can just go look up stuff that he posted on the news group 20 years ago and get instantly usable quotes. So <laughs> th- thanks, Internet Archive. Um. Anyway, so I guess that makes sense. When Rocky came out, it was like a 10-year-old car model. So for those who give a shit about that kind of thing, I suppose it wouldn't have been that obscure of a fact at all. And when you dig into the features that this car has, boy, does it say a lot about our boy Brad. The 1967 Ford Country Squire wagon featured a full set of fold-down seats in the back with a large cargo capacity, perfect for being shot down by Janet wherever they might park. (laughs) God. I think my favorite thing on this car is the magical rear door, which opened both like a regular tailgate and also could swing open side to side this feels like a really fucking baller feature like by the end of the 60s most station wagons featured this magical door design which is cool as fuck for a station wagon especially yeah apparently it was super useful for like I mean, the ads all were like, you can load your kayak in or you can fold it down and have a picnic. Like, it's it's this really weird feature that, like, apparently was, like, huge selling point during the 60s. I can bring my kayak on a picnic. <laughs> so, yeah, part, part of what we know about this model of car is because there is a set of dealer advertisements for the 67 Country Squire up on YouTube. So these are films that would have been shown to the Ford dealer reps, and it was to tell them all about the features on the latest car models that they could then go later pair it to the people who are, you know, trying to buy a new car. The dealer ads specifically tout the fold-down seats, that magical door, and most importantly, they do feature an optional 8-track player. So this was actually one of the first years that 8-track players were even an option in cars. The entire boom for 8-track as an audio format is widely attributed to its inclusion in American cars in the late 60s. In 1965, Ford first introduced factory and dealer-installed 8-track players as an option on three of its 1966 models. They were the Mustang, the Thunderbird, and the Lincoln. To support the newfound install base, RCA Victor introduced 175 8-track tapes that were recordings from their catalog in 1965. They were so popular that just one year later, by the 1967 model year, that's the year of our country squire, all Ford vehicles offered an 8-track player upgrade. Boom! Indeed, we have cracked this one wide open. Brad could have theoretically recorded Nixon's speech on an 8-track tape, and then he could have 
theoretically played it on the tape deck on his brand new eight-year-old 1967 Ford Country Squire wagon. We did it, guys. Boom. Or, and not to be like a total bitch here, but he could have had the aftermarket eight-track installed. Like, I'm sure that was a thing, right? And like, it didn't necessarily have to be an eight-track. Cassettes were still a thing, too. Brad could have had a portable cassette player just sitting on his seat. Who's to say that audio is even coming through the car speakers? I, myself, used to drive around with a laptop open on my passenger seat playing Law and Order SVU as I drove around to and from school and college. Wow, that sounds safe. It was not, no, but I had Olivia Benson with me to protect me. <laughs> also, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news here, Aaron, but Brad's car doesn't appear to ha even have an 8-track player. I'm, I'm sorry. What? How? How do you how do you even know? <laughs> do you not remember? We see the front dash when Brad turns around to back up the car right before the tire blows. On a 1967 Country Squire, the factory included eight track was mounted separate from and above the radio. Wow, get fucked, sweetie. Oh. And well, I know you went through all of this research, but if you look at frame. 18,870 of the movie and do a little bit of zoom and enhance, there's no 8-track or 8-track player anywhere to be seen. Well, that's that's some fucking bullshit. I don't, I don't, I don't like that. Also, like, Nixon's speech could have just been playing on the radio, right? Who's to say it's even the whole speech? The couple of lines that we hear are truly, like, some of the most recognizable. Even I've heard them other places, and I don't listen to anything. It's literally where he announces his resignation. This is only three months after the first time in history a U.S. president stepped down. Like, news cycles were slower. Watergate was drug out forever. Even today, if you flip on the news, odds are you'll still hear a quote that a politician made, like, months ago. It could have just been some other news story that used part of the speech for context. But... But I looked at the dealer information sheet. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, the more we dig into this, the more it seems the Rocky community has been wrong in calling it a mistake for the last 50 years. There's plenty of reasonable explanations for why this fragment of a speech could have been on the radio, even three months after it first aired. The 70s were also the dawn of public broadcasting. The passing of the Public Broadcasting Act of 1967 laid the groundwork for the creation of both PBS and NPR with the initial NPR broadcast in 1971. It's not that hard to believe that Brad had his radio permanently tuned to the news. Oh, I suppose that's fair. And really, not to belabor the point, but if you go check the newspapers from November of 74, Nixon's resignation and all of the impending fallout was still front page shit. Like, there was a huge scandal about the Democratic organizations and that the IRS had targeted them under Nixon's purview. Surely a radio story about that might have included a quick aside about the resignation with, with the audio clip to go there, you know? Well, you guys have, have really deflated this one. Like the tire on a 67 country squire, am I right? I fucking hate county you. County squire, gotta take that again. No, it's country. 
Oh, well, perfect. I still fucking hate you. Sorry, buddy. This was a pretty wild ride, though. <laughs> That's fair. Like the ride in a 67 Country Squire. <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on. I've got another question, though. Okay, so Brad's driving an eight-year-old car, right? He certainly didn't buy it new. Like, I mean, maybe he did, but probably not because how old did he say he was? He's like 22 or something. He's too old to be flirting with Janet, that's for sure. So, okay, he didn't buy this car new when he was 14. Do you guys know where it came from? Like, do we have any good speculations on that? I know that you can own a refurbished car today for like $18,000. So in 1967, the Country Squire stickered for $3,359. And that's almost thirty grand adjusted for like inflation and modernization of money. I have my doubts that Brad was able to buy that by himself, especially when he was 14 years old. I mean, maybe it was his dad's car? Oh, well, that's too obvious. Daddy Bostwick got it. <laughs> Father Bostwick? I mean, if that's the case, then Daddy's going to be real mad that he just left it in the middle of the woods because he got a flat tire. Man, my, my dad would have reamed my ass if I'd done that. What else do you do? It's not like you, you pull out the magical phone you have in your pocket and, like, call somebody to come change your tire. It would have been a lot shorter of a movie. <laughs> yeah. Although, it would make sense why Janet was marrying him. I gotta say, if he comes from, like, hella money, where Daddy Bostwick is just buying him a $30,000 car right out of high school. Wow. You heard it here first, guys. Janet's a gold digger, says Meg. I ain't saying she gold digger. <laughs> what I am saying is if this guy's replaying, like, Nixon's speeches on his fucking tape deck or even listening to the news in the car after he gets engaged, like, there's no reason for him to have gotten engaged and immediately listened to the Nixon speech regardless of why it's happening or the logistics behind it. He's just a fucking dweeb. But it makes sense why she would be on board for that if Father Bostwick has lots of money. Wow. I mean, I definitely <laughs> can't imagine, like, listening to a tape of a presidential resignation in the car with my fiancé. That's very strange to me. Like, Especially, like, immediately afterwards, you know? Yeah. Right? Like, it would help if the movie had been, like... 12 hours later, right? Like, this is a long-ass drive. They've already had the fight that they had after they got engaged, right? Where Janet's like, why the fuck are we going to see Dr. Scott? You know? So this is like, fine, I'm just going to turn on NPR and you can read your newspaper, you bitch. Like, so, so here's one. Maybe he bought the car from Dr. Scott and still owes him money. And that's why he needs to go and visit him. Ooh, I like that one. That's fun. Okay, and we have to, like, stay real chummy with him because I owe him for his car. That's fair. I mean, Scott didn't need it anymore, right? It's not like he was driving anywhere. <laughs> Ooh, yikes. That's probably not <laughs> very appropriate. That's okay. He's a Nazi. You can make fun of Nazis right, in right, 2022. Right. We can make fun of Nazis. <laughs> I like that. I like... No, here's, here's my favorite conspiracy theory, though. The car was actually Ralph's. Like... Daddy Bostwick did buy Brad 
a car, but he bought him that hot 1967 Ford Galaxy that Ralph is driving that he drives away with. But but Brad being a dick, he raced ralph for pinks and he lost so they had to swap so he got the shitty car that ralph had and ralph got his really cool 67 ford galaxy eh? Eh? but aaron have yeah. you never raced for pinks before you keep both cars well i i i guess i haven't <laughs> what if he was really nice and like lent his friend his car for his honeymoon because it was nicer Oh well, that's that's just Brad being a nice guy. We don't we don't want any of that here. Oh yeah, fuck that. He's an asshole. We've established that. <laughs> I mean, are 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 none of us gonna like throw out the option here that maybe it's Janet's car? Nobody says this is Brad's car, right? I want to say she's a woman and can't own things. It's the seventies. But I also want to say, good for her for not having to drive around and for making her man drive. <laughs> Also, where'd Janet get $30,000? She's like 19 in this story, right? From Daddy. Mmm, Daddy Sarandon. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, that's the answer. It was Daddy Sarandon's car, and Brad's just driving it. I like it. That's why she's so pissed that he didn't get the tire replaced, because he already fucked it up last time she loaned it to him. <laughs> Oh, that's almost a Reefer Madness reference. I'll take it. There you go. Right? It's almost 9 p.m. <laughs> and wreck dad's Packard. Oh. <laughs> All right, guys, we did it. We, we solved the case. I think so. All right. Well, that's our show. Randy, thank you so much for joining us on air this week, for giving us this wonderful little question to, like, dick around with. It was a good one. We absolutely love having you here, as always. Thank you, Randy, so much for joining us. And uh, thank you out there for listening to us pontificate about this nonsense. It's super fun to dig into these weird, stupid things. Thank you for bringing this one up, man. I, I really enjoyed getting to have an excuse to go watch some 70s car commercials. Thank you for getting an answer for me. And, <laughs> and thank you for having me on the show. I really enjoyed it. We'll talk to you soon, man. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.